Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. This is the Fierce Fiduciary Podcast, Episode 11. I'm Brian Beasley, and with me is Dan Alberth. Good morning, Dan. Good morning. Standard housekeeping. Any information in this podcast should not be deemed personal investment or financial financial planning advice for you. Please contact a properly registered and licensed professional for advice unique to you. In 1999, I got caught up in the tech stock boom and bubble as that was going on. And I want to share a little bit of my experience. I had some money set aside and I was playing. I was picking stocks. I was, I don't want to say it, but I was essentially gambling. I was speculating. I was doing all those things. And I had a little bit of money set aside and I was playing with purchasing some of these stocks, like I said. One company in particular was Cybernot Corporation. And that company... Obviously a household name these days. Yeah, right. You don't hear that one anymore. Uh, In 1999, the stock price was a penny stock. It was under a dollar, and then it started going up, and there was noise about this company. I ended up buying some shares at $2.50 a share. Stock kept on going up. I bought some more at $5, then $7. More news, more good news, and more developments. And the stock kept on taking off. I picked up some additional shares at $18. And so I'm thinking I'm a genius because I've got this stock. It's going to the moon. It's going to the moon. I bought it at $250. And here it is at $18. I'm buying some more because it's... It's heading off it's to, going the to the moon. Yeah. So I watch it rise to over $29 a share. Almost, wow, almost 15 times your money. So it was fantastic. The, as I was looking at my statement, it was unbelievable. On fire, I felt very good about myself. And then there was a turn, and then I started watching the stock go down and down. And then go up a little bit for a couple of days. I say, okay, maybe we're back on track mm-hmm. and then it started going down and down and down again bottom line it kept on going i ended up selling out my position at one dollar per share and the owner of the company was arrested for fraud so the company wow. no longer trades and that's my experience i think about that as i work with clients going forward. So that's always in the back of my hand, my mind as I talk to people. And uh, it's a hard lesson. And you're, you're not alone. I mean, there's so many people that got burned that way. And not only not only fraudulent companies, but I mean, that, that kind of thing was going on, you know, also in around the 2008 bubble. And it's happened before. I mean, the, 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 we talked about this in um, our episode. Where we talked about the, the great crash in 1929. Yes, um, you know all the fraud, all the fraud and all the embezzlement. You know, usually gets exposed once the markets turn the other way and things aren't going so good. Um, you know, Bernie Madoff and his Ponzi scheme. He got burned. Uh, eventually, he had to turn himself in because in two thousand eight, the market was just so bad he couldn't he couldn't sustain the withdrawals. That's right. And before we continue, yeah. I have to make another disclaimer. Because I have to tell my wife that this was truly play money, and there wasn't. <laughs> A lot of real money in this. Right. So right. it was not substantial. It was not meaningful. It was not my long-term investment. And that, that, that actually is what I hear a lot. I, hey, my serious money's over here doing the serious stuff. 
and I have this play up play account, this play money where right. where it's really my gambling money. It's my That's Vegas right. money. It's my entertainment budget. I've heard someone call it mad money, but it's essentially yeah. dollars that you can lose a hundred percent of it tomorrow, and it's inconsequential. So, and that's not what we're go. talking about today. So that's that's a great way of of pointing out the opposite of what we're talking about, which is the other bigger pile of money, the serious money that's designed for actually achieving major financial goals in people's lives. The long term investing that is a higher probability of success. Maybe you don't have those super big home run hits, but you also don't strike out as often if you do it properly. And, uh, you know, when we're talking about long-term investing, long-term, I, I get a sense that someone's definition of long-term changes as they get older. Because, you know, you talk to a 12-year-old kid and long-term might be a whole, a whole year. You know, it's like a tenth of their life or whatever. <laughs> It's a right. huge deal, and you hear you hear I hear my my daughter in college, and and she's she's talking about you know way back in the day when she was in high school, you know all of like three years ago, and so <laughs> to me you know it I I I smile at that, and we joke about it at home, but long term when it comes to investing is at the very least a full investment cycle. What's and that? So a full, full investment like cycle. a full economic cycle where like you go, you know, the economy goes from boom to bust to boom to bust to boom to bust. And okay. there's just a cyclical pattern over time. It's not a regular pattern. It's not a, it's not always the same length of time, but generally speaking, you're talking about a minimum of one full cycle in the economy and in the markets. And that's, that's historically been somewhere between seven and 12 years. When you're talking about someone's actual investment horizon for their lifetime they're investing for to fund their children's college they're investing to fund their retirement or their financial freedom or if you're part of that fire movement the um where you're where you're you're saving up like crazy you're being frugal and you're going to retire early Mm -hmm. your life your, your your time frame is not it's your life expectancy is what it is and so whatever, however old you are, it's your life expectancy. And it may be beyond that life expectancy. For example, a 65-year-old male, um, there's a 50% chance that that 65-year-old male is going to live somewhere to their early 80s. But there's a 50% chance they live longer. We've had some folks we've talked to where they're 60 years old. And when we ask them about their time horizon for investing, they say, hey, I'm, in, I'm retiring at 62, 63, so my time horizon is two to three years here. With yeah, this and that's money. not the finish line. The finish line is when, when you're gone. And that may be the starting line of a different investment phase, phase but you're investing long term. It's your life expectancy. So when we're talking about long-term investing i mean obviously if you're in a very aggressive portfolio at least the math anyway would say you need to be thinking 20 plus years for a portfolio that's 100 percent stock why do we say 20 plus years it's because that's when the math kicks in in your favor by 20 years most of the time the returns tend to average out and you you end up getting the average market returns 
if you're lucky and you start at the bottom, you might have a wailing great few years. Like if anybody that started, say, in the last, any, if you if you started investing, I'd say any time between March of 2009 to March of 2010 in that year, or even in the last decade, and you were basically investing in U.S. stocks, you've had a tremendous start. The 10-year returns, I think, on the stock market, at least as we're talking in, in uh, the third quarter of 2020, is somewhere in the 14% range per year for the last decade. That's above average. So congratulations. But over a 20-year period, you're probably going to get average returns, and it, it works the other way too. What if you're unlucky? What if you started your investing at, and you were a stock market investor and you started in um, 2007 and you had a really horrible start? Over from 2007 to 2027, odds are better in your favor. You're going to end up making some of that up. And sure enough, there was a strong recovery off of that initial drop that you had. So from 2007, your first few years were just horrible as that big financial crisis hit. But if you're a conservative investor, you still need to be thinking long term. The most conservative models that we run, we're still looking at five years plus at a bare minimum. So some, when we're talking about long-term mindset, it's not a few months. It's not a few. If, you, if you're like a, a, a day trader or an hourly trader, you might think that long-term, one of those speculators like you were talking about earlier, if you're, um, if you're thinking in terms of your play money account with a few hundred dollars or a few thousand dollars on a, on a mobile app based. A few hundred dollars. Yeah, a few hundred dollars. But if you have a small amount of money, invested in and you're trading via your phone on an hourly basis you may think that long term is like a whole month it's not it's five years 20 years even your life expectancy you need to have a much longer term mindset when you start talking about serious money and and so we just want to lay the foundation we're talking about long-term investing here um now along those lines We find when people have a true long-term perspective, they tend to have better expectations. They're looking at the long-term numbers. They're looking at, and, and they have good expectations of, of what they should expect from their investment portfolio. However, we run, into, we run into situations where people have unrealistic expectations. And I'm just going to run through a few of them. We've discussed these. There's, there's people that are the they're going, to, they're going to start a new investment plan. They're going to start a new investment strategy. And their attitude is, I'm going to see how it goes. You know, let's, let's try this out and see how it goes. And those key words, if that's in somebody's brain, I know for a fact they have a short-term mindset because see how it goes assumes that they're going to, it's like they're taking a trial, like test drive of a car. You can't do that with an investment strategy or investment program because if you have a long-term investment program where at a bare minimum, it, a full market cycle is 7 to 12 years, the next six months, the next year, or even three years really has no bearing on whether that's a solid investment strategy or not. There's no telling what's going to happen in the next six to 12 months. And no investment strategy 
can predict what's going to happen in six to 12 months. No investment advisor, no investment professional, no trading guru can predict with certainty over and over and over again what's going to happen the next six to 12 months. So they're making a couple of major prop, major mistakes there. If you're in the, I'm going to see how it goes camp, number one, you have an incredibly short-term mindset that has no bearing on whether it's a good plan or not, or whether you've hired a good advisor or not. Um, Can I put some realism or yeah, some please. realistic stats in there? If someone started by investing in 2008 and they invested in the S&P 500 index, which is what folks are talking about these days, right. the S&P 500 index was down, what, 38%? Just in that calendar year. In it, calendar year 2008. Right, right. It dropped 52% from the peak to the valley, which was October to March. Right, right. Uh, October 07 to March of 09. Now you have somebody starting their program with a new investor, a new manager, a new advisor. Right. And they start out by saying, I'll see, let's see how it goes. Let's see how it goes. And then you have 2008 hit. Right. Clearly, clearly these strategies completely flawed. Clearly the advisor is a complete moron. You have to fire that advisor. That's what most people would do. And then what they do is they miss out on the entire recovery that we've just seen where I'm using the Dow Jones average as an example, but when the Dow Jones got, got cut in half the same period, I think it hit 6,000 on the Dow Jones. In spite of COVID, in spite of all the things we're dealing with in 2020, we're sitting at 26,000. So it was at 6,000 yeah. back in 2008, So that short, that see how it goes, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. You, if you're looking to figure out if you have a good, solid investment program or a good, solid investment strategy, you've got to look at the history of that strategy over very, very, very long-term periods of time, as long as you can possibly get. And you want to look at rolling periods. So you want to look at not just the trailing 10 years, but every single 10-year period that's ever existed for that investment program. You want to look at risk. You want to look at volatility. We've talked about that in, in previous episodes. But the see how it goes is no way to live because it, you're basically going to end up lucking your way into whatever you stick with. So on the flip side of the example you gave, um, I've noticed that a lot of the top advisors in the country, at least when I was coming up, when I started my career in the mid-90s, the a lot of the top producers all started their career in 1981, 82, or 83. Now, those are key years because at that time, the Dow Jones was about 1,000, and the, the roaring 80s were coming. Oh, by the way, interest rates on bonds were as high as 13% for 30-year treasuries, 12% for 30-year treasuries at that time, I think. And you can get 18% CDs. During those people's entire career, they could do no wrong for like a decade. And so they became very, very well trusted, obviously, but it was really the markets that fanned the flames of their success. So all the top producers were people who simply had great, great success right out of the beginning of their career. And, and, the markets, stocks were going up and bonds were going up and everything was just making money hand over fist. On the flip side of that, anybody who started their career in our, in, as an advisor in, say, 1999 didn't survive. Very few people started in 99 and really survived the business. Very few people that started their career in 2007 survived in the business because those first few years... You're, the clients were judging. It's the see how it goes mentality. So if you're a see how it goes person, 
the odds are you're going to fire advisors over and over again until you luck into an advisor or a strategy that finally works for the first couple of years you try it. And then you'll stick with that for life because now you're a believer because it's real to you. But the truth is you can do your homework and find out if somebody, there's ways of identifying if you have a competent best practice advisor uh, who's really following the proper procedures and proper um, analytics to give you a highest success rate. That's publishable. I mean, it's, it's very public knowledge. There's research out there and that you can, people can find if they're looking to evaluate an advisor, but it sure as heck isn't what's the performance of the account during the first year or two years or three years. That's that it's a crapshoot. It's a roll of the dice. There's a myth you're kind of talking about where the advisor, people might think that the advisor dictates the returns that they get in the portfolio and they forget that the market has a vote. The market gets a gigantic vote in performance because yeah, uh, we, 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 we've had people talk about, you know, oh, my advisors are doing well by me because they're, they're making me a lot of money. Your advisor's not making you the money, the market is. What the advisor's doing is they're, following, they're doing some things to make things more efficient for you so you can get as much of the possible return as you can. They're saving you money on taxes. They're making sure you're properly aligned. They're managing risk. They're focused on controllables. And we've talked about a lot of these things already on, on this podcast. But yeah, you're right. It's, that's the advisors, true fiduciary, registered investment advisors, certified financial planners. Their role is not to create returns. The markets can do that for you. The trick is understanding the risks involved and, and getting as much of those returns as possible. And that's that's just a, a, a major, major misconception and myth out there. If you're a see-how-it-goes person, you're going to have a tough time. The second type of person that has unrealistic expectations is, I'll call these the best of both worlds people. So somewhere in their mind, they think that their expectation is, is that when... They basically expect whatever did best this past year. So, um, you know, stocks did great. Did I beat the stock market? Well, okay. And then if stocks are down, well, did I beat a CD or gold or whatever did best that year? And it doesn't work that way. Nobody can predict what's going to be best every single year. That's an arbitrary way to live. You've got to have a specific investment strategy with a specific investment policy with expectations that, that go along with that. If the you kind have, of person that says, I want to invest in stocks when stocks are roaring and going to the moon, and I want to be invested in CDs when the stock market is down. Yeah, it's this idea that people have crystal balls and can predict. And you know, if they're, if they're paying anybody a dime for, for advice or for anything at all, that they expect something that's completely unrealistic. And that's just uh, that's a shame, but that's just not the way the laws work in the world of investing. It does, there's, no, there's no predicting what's going to be best in any one year. Um, if there is a 100% trade-off between potential return long-term and remember what I said, long-term, long-term. There's a trade-off between long-term potential return and the volatility you have along the way. If you reduce that volatility dramatically, you're probably going to have a trade-off in the returns. It's just, in all probability, that's the way it typically works. There's another group of people that are, let's face it, you know, most of us as adults and the older you get, the longer it's been since you took a math class. <laughs> so you get rusty. Um the investment and financial world runs on percentage math. 
And sadly, most of us had the last instruction we had on percentage math was probably in late elementary, maybe early junior high school. And you maybe touched on it throughout high school. But like in my case, I mean, I have, even with a finance degree with the AP classes and stuff like that, I never had to take math as a formal mathematics class in college. And it's, it's, it's a long time for a lot of people. Um, you run into people where because they don't understand the percentage math, there's, there's layers to this. So there's the people that they literally just don't understand what, what 10% means or 4% or compounding the idea of compounding, compounding interest, compounding capital gains, compounding dividends, whatever. It's all percentage math. And there's people that just need to get a, a grasp of that percentage math. So that's, that's a potential hurdle. If you're a long-term investor, if you don't understand that percentage math, it can create some real challenges for you. Um, in setting expectations, realistic expectations. And that, yeah, and expectations are the other piece of it. Because if you if you if you all the other piece of it is you need to understand the history and you understand what average returns really are. So, for example, let's use the round number that goes around the the this. I guess the stereotype is the stock market. U.S. stock market has averaged ten percent a year historically over time. That's a real common number. Now, the number, the accurate numbers probably fluctuates a little bit year to year. And it's, in, I really like inflation plus six and a half or inflation plus seven, depending on the time frame you're looking at. But there are still people, because they don't understand that math, that are still thinking, okay, when you're talking about 10% a year, so there's 10% in a year. That means if you had $100,000, you're lucky if you made. $10,000. That's a good year. It's a good year. But 10% in a year isn't that dramatic. And it certainly doesn't go in a straight line, but let's assume it went in a straight line. Let's assume every trading day you moved up a little bit so that at the end of the year, you would have made 10%. Well, there's about 220 trading days in a year. So by the time you take that $10,000 and divide it by... 200, let's do that math. $10,000 divided by 100 is 100 bucks. $10,000 divided by, that's the $10,000 gain, the 10% gain you had on your $100,000 portfolio. Let's say there's only 200 trading days. There's actually a few more. It's less than 50 bucks a day on a $100,000 account. That's if it moved in a straight line. That's not, that's so, that's so infinitesimally small. And yet you'll still have people that will say, Hey, um, can I get 1% a day? That seems easy. I mean, it's 1%. Surely I can get 1% a day every single day, every single trading day. That's like 250% a year. If you compound it. No, that's not likely. That's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. It's not probable. I've never heard of anybody that did it. <laughs> if they did, would they be a household name? Um, even Warren Buffett, who's averaged, I think the numbers around 20% a year over the entirety of his 60 year career, it's only 20%, not 250%. So if you're talking about 1% a day or higher, um, really unrealistic expectations. And we're just getting through mindset here in the first few minutes, we're going to get into strategies and, and, and other things in a little bit. Um, there's another one that happens when you have really good bull markets or if you have a, a market that's running hot where everything's going up and stocks are going up. It's the it's doing so well people. 
These are people that are chasing the recent returns. And we've talked about this. We're going to keep talking about this till the cows come home probably. Past performance is no indication of future results. It's no guarantee of future results. And furthermore, especially if you have a short-term mindset, they don't repeat. They just don't repeat. Just like the anecdote you said, you had a $2 stock that went to $26 and finished $29. $29. And then it finished at, well, you finally finished. It finished at basically zero. It finished at zero. You got some money out, thankfully. But when you're chasing hot stuff, you're taking more risk than you realize you're taking. And you need to have a better expectation, especially if you're a long-term investor about serious money. So that's expectations. In episode nine, we talked about factors. We talked about factors that affect durable factors that have a positive effect on investment returns over very long periods of time. There And there are some very, very smart academics that have figured all this out. This is not our opinion. This is well-published uh, documentation over decades of research by people much smarter than you and I. But one of the ones, that we, in, at least in what we've observed, is what I would say the most highly correlated factor with future results. That sounds awesome. It's like, this is the one. This is the thing. This is the secret, right? It's the one factor that's correlated with future results. What's the secret? It's no secret. But there's a catch. The factor is called valuation. And you and I throw this word around. It's just part of our DNA. We understand what valuation is. And it's it's not the same thing as price. People think value, value equals price, valuation. And, and there is a financial vocabulary out there that's, and there's just no getting around it. You just can't make every, we try as hard as we can to speak normal people speak when we're working with folks, but there's just a little bit of vocabulary that's required. And this idea of valuation is a way of saying, Hey, Price, you know, Warren Buffett has a saying. He says, price is what you pay, value is what you get. Valuation is trying to figure out, is something on sale or not for what I'm getting? That's just what valuation is. Lots of ways to do this, but basically you're taking the price and you're dividing by some number. Maybe you're doing price divided by the profits of the company. Maybe you're doing the value of the company, enterprise value of the company divided by cash flow. I mean, there's a lot of different, but basically you're taking... Effectively, you're taking price divided by some number to come up with something that is easier to understand. You know, am I getting value for what I'm what I'm getting? And and as a way to compare from one thing to another. Yeah. So if you're looking to compare one investment to another investment, you can't just look at the price per share, for example, between two stocks. So let's say you're looking at Intel versus AMD or Intel versus Micron Technologies. These are microchip companies. They are all in the same business. They do all the same stuff. If you want to compare those three companies, their share prices are all going to be different because that's just the way the way share prices change with a company. They might have different shares outstanding. The value of the business is different. So share price doesn't allow you to compare which one's good and which one's not. 
So like a company that has a high share price doesn't mean it's a better company or that it's on sale. And just because it has a low price, like your $2.50 stock that you bought, that doesn't mean it's on sale. That could be ridiculously overvalued and worthless. <laughs> so as you found out, but value is one of those things that you don't, valuation gives you a hint to value potentially. But the true value is revealed over time. Just like if you buy a car, you might buy a car that looks like a great deal at that used car dealership, and it might turn out to be a lemon. It cost you more than it was worth. Likewise, you might spend more money for a much more reliable car, let's say a certified used car or something that has some sort of a warranty on it. You might pay more for that, but it might be more valuable to you in the long run and actually save you money. Likewise, with investments, when we look at the stock market, for example, valuation is the most highly correlated factor with future results. And I said there was a catch. The future results, how far into the future? Valuation correlates depending on whose measure you're looking at. There's lots we discussed in episode nine. There's a number of people there. It correlates 70 to 93%, depending on the measure, with returns that are 10 to 12 years out. That's the catch. So you have a really good idea if you buy something, if you buy, say, the entire stock market when its valuation is very, very high, you can expect that you're going to have lower than average returns 12 years from now or 10 years from now. Likewise, if it's 1982 and valuations are very, very low, like they were a third of what they are now, odds are you're going to have a better experience 10, 12 years out, above average. So low valuations typically historically have led to above average returns for the following decade. Higher than average valuations have led to lower than average returns over the following decade. And we saw this in the dot-com bubble in the year 2000, right around when everything was at the peak where you were all excited about your $29 penny stock that didn't go anywhere. Right. Returns from that point till 2010 turned out to be really not that great. We don't need to talk about that stock ever again, (laughs) Brian. (laughs) Can we talk a few more moments about, we used the word value and valuation a few different times. I want to make sure that I'm clear in my head how that word value versus valuation, how that, that definition in that usage is a little bit different. So when you're talking about the valuation of a stock back in 1982, the valuation of a company was low, meaning it so like was the price divided by sale. the like the price divided by the profits back then was around eight. So it was trading the stock market in general was trading at about eight times earnings or eight times its profits. So that's relatively as cheap as we've seen in our lifetime. Historical averages range between 15 to 17, depending on the time frame you're looking at, for the overall market. For the price to earnings. For the price divided by the earnings. Okay. I'm not saying that's the best one in, in terms of predictive capability, but it's, it's the one that most people can easily understand. Just understand that concept that you're trying to figure out, hey, what am I getting from what am I buying? So valuation, 
then there's other ratios and there's articles and things that we post on our social media and we, we share with our clients on a regular basis to get into more detail on that. Okay. But when you're talking about like the dot-com era, that same market was trading at 34 times profits. So four times as expensive as 1982. Well, duh, no shocker. It's going to have a bad, bad return because you just bought too high. What's the old adage? Buy low. Sell high. The challenge to folks is after you make that purchase and you bought high, it could still go higher and you may get into that. And that, that. can happen. You, yeah, it happened in 1999. We, things were already expensive in 1999 when, when people were getting excited about these dot-com stocks. They were the future. They were the, and we're going to cover that whole bubble on this on this podcast. But even now, we have people that just started investing maybe back in March at the low 2020, in the March, excuse me, the March low. And from that point up, there's certain areas of our market that have been on fire. They've been doing great. And those there's some of those folks that just got started, and they think that's the way the world works. And we're just trying to say, you got to think longer term. Look back longer than 10 years. Look at every 10-year period. The, the, the history doesn't become irrelevant because there was innovation in different technologies. That's been happening forever. In the 1960s, there were major innovations. We were in the middle of a whole thing to go to the moon. Back then, everything was Star Trek and the Jetsons, and we were going to be in flying cars in 30 years and, and all that kind of stuff. But there were still companies and technologies that were just as hot as the hottest stocks right now. The world doesn't didn't like suddenly like make the history irrelevant. You gotta look longer term and study the history because it actually is relevant. Valuation matters. Even after 1999 with the dot com boom and the and the, the advent of the internet, people thought, oh, now everything's going to be different. Well, you know, valuations continued to correlate with future returns. So it's it just does. And that's it. You need you need to pay attention to that. So those are fundamental things. So you got to have that long term mindset. You got to understand valuation if you're going to be a long term investor. It's just critical things you need to understand, and you need to be aware that your expectations need to be realistic. If you don't know what realistic expectations are, ask, ask until, until you, you understand. understand. <laughs> so you're 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 now at a point where um, now we're going to segue into strategy. So you are. Uh, we, we've talked about in other episodes, you know yourself really well. You know your risk tolerance. You know your goals. You've done that math. You've asked every question. Um, you're asking the questions from our, our episode seven about the, the key questions you gotta be, you got to get answered. You're, you're already there. But now you're at that point where you're ready to implement. And you're starting to think, okay, I have this goal. I know my risk tolerance. I know how much risk I want to take. And... What we're going to go over today is there's there's basically a, a couple of different ways you can implement strategically now. You know, this is not the podcast where we're telling you what to do this week. You you might be listening to this. Somebody might be listening to this a year after we recorded it. So we want this to be timeless information. But from a strategic standpoint, this is probably going to be useful no matter when you're listening to this or, um, you know, where you are in life. If you're doing a long-term investment plan, there's really just a couple of ways that are most common. They do work. 
provided that you're patient enough. So now we're getting down to kind of like personal preference type stuff. And there can be arguments over the math, which weighs better. There's, that's going to be an endless argument over time. But when we're, when we're working with our folks, there's a menu of options and it comes down to you, you got to have something that matches you. The most common overall strategy is what we would call go with the herd. In the United States, that typically is a portfolio dominated by domestic large U.S. stocks and domestic U.S. bonds of some sort. So it's large stocks, large bonds, and that can be a very successful strategy. Historically, over time, that's worked. There's been times when it's had tougher times. There's been times when it's had rougher times. But if you're going with the herd, there's a couple of benefits to this. Number one is you're with the herd. So you never feel like an outsider. You never have that like feeling of, oh gosh, did I do something wrong? Because at least if everything's going bad, you're in good company. All your neighbors and all your friends and all your coworkers and family members, you're all commiserating together when things are bad and you're all celebrating together when things are good. The other thing is, if you're going to imp implement this strategy, I would say, especially if you have more stocks than bonds in that portfolio, you're thinking much, much longer term. You're thinking 20 plus years, like we talked about earlier. You need to be, and I'd say especially at today's valuations in the U.S. start market, you need to be thinking very long term. Stand by to be very, very patient if this is your strategy. Now, why do we say that? Number one, we just talked about valuation. Valuations today in 2020, I'll just say they're not on sale. Interest rates on those bonds, they're below average. In fact, they're near record lows. So if you're investing in U.S., primarily U.S. bonds and primarily U.S. stocks, I would just say you better be patient if, those, if you're in that strategy. You need, and if you're long enough term, though, if you're patient enough, like we said earlier, odds are the averages are going to catch up to you and you'll be fine. The danger is the people who are investing in that with the herd and they're thinking three years, five years, 10 years. That may not be long enough for that, for a strategy like that. So you just need to be very, very, very patient. But it, will it work? Eventually, yes. All these will work eventually. Every strategy, every good strategy works over the long run. Folks who don't have the long-term uh, outlook on their investments when they're only thinking one year, three year, five years, especially at today's valuations, as you say, there's a real risk, a real danger to that person that they may seek to change their investment strategy at the worst possible time. We've talked about this in yeah. past episodes, but it's worth bringing up again right now, I think. And, and, and with those shorter-term time frames, it's you're you're throwing diversified long-term portfolios out the door. That's not even in the cards. Like we've we've had clients where they have a need that's a year or two out, and you just use different strategies for that. You use things with a rate and a date that are reliable. Like I need to have a down payment to buy my home when I'm getting married in a year, and I'm going to need to buy a home, and we're going to need that money. Well, if you need that money, you need to err towards stability and predictability rather than seeking higher income or seeking higher potential growth. There's a trade-off there. So that's why we were saying even conservative portfolios, you need to be thinking minimally. The most conservative portfolios that we manage where there might be zero stocks in it, we're still thinking five years out. These are income engines designed to supplement income for people who are maybe in their 80s. 
they still need to be thinking five years out. And if there's needs shorter term than that, you dial it even further back towards the stability corner. There's a triangle we've, do, we've done with people where there's stability on one corner, income's another corner, and potential growth of the third corner. There's a trade-off in that triangle. So anytime you're being shorter term, like those under five years, we, you got to really dial it back, the risk. Um, so, but if you're not, let's say some people are like, ah, I'm kind of worried about the herd. I'm kind of concerned. Here's what you need to understand. If you want to have the best, let's say you want to have the same returns as the herd portfolio historically has received, but you want to do it with less risk. One would say, oh, you got the same returns at less risk, less volatility. That's an improvement. Or you might seek to have the same volatility, but get more return. You could seek that. But here's the rub, and this is critical. Anything else that you do to get different results, they're going to be different. It seems obvious, but we're all hardwired to look at and compare ourselves to the Dow Jones or to the S&P 500 or to the NASDAQ or to the aggregate bond market index, that kind of thing. And the thing people need to understand is if you're going to get different results, you will be investing differently in order to get those different results. And that what that means is there will be times, this is the hard part, if you're going to be different. There's going to be times when all your neighbors and friends and family and coworkers are celebrating and you're in kind of looking at your accounts going, eh, meh. And by the same token, there's a potential that if you're in that other strategy, that when they're miserable, you're actually looking and going, huh, I'm, I'm actually doing well. But you kind of feel guilty in those days because you can't really share it. So you don't have that social thing going on when you're investing differently than the herd. Although there are very, very successful long-term investors who have gone counter to the herd, who've done incredibly well over time. But the thing people need to understand is if you're going to get different results, you're going to have different results <laughs> you right? need fortitude you need it takes some it takes a little bit of fortitude to be different and to to do things and seek a better outcome than the average person out there and uh, and and that's a huge huge deal so what's one major way that someone can be different um it and there's lots of people out there that would would subscribe to this philosophy warren buffett talks like this he says be greedy when others are fearful and be fearful when others are greedy. What's he saying there? He's saying, don't go with the herd. Be long-term minded, but don't go with the herd. What we would call it is just buy the cheaper asset classes that are on sale. We saw asset classes that could be categories of bonds, categories of stocks, small stocks, big stocks, emerging market stocks, um, large developed foreign stocks, large developed foreign bonds, emerging market bonds, you know, short-term, long-term, intermediate-term bonds, high-quality high bonds, uh, high-yield, lower-quality bonds. There's lots of categories. There's commodities. Those are an asset class. There's gold. There's other commodities. There's hedge funds is now an asset class. Um, you can get exposure to lots of different types of things. Real estate is out there. So 
all those are asset classes, but there's a way of looking at valuations and looking at yields and the difference between between interest rates on bonds and things to figure out what's on sale. And so if your strategy could be go with the herd, another strategy could be, hey, buy whatever's a good value. Buy the things that have a lower valuation because they're on sale, so to speak. And there is a category out there that people call value. And that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about just investing as a value investor. We're talking about always buying and being exposed to asset classes that are on sale. In this strategy, you're buying whatever's on sale. And anything at any point in time could potentially be on sale. You could have growth assets on quotes, air quotes, on sale, even though they're growth assets. Back in 2003, after the tech bubble completely burst and the dot-com bubble had completely blown up, a lot of technology stuff was very, very, very on sale. Back then, a lot of, in 2000, 2001, a lot of emerging markets investments were very, very on sale. Back in 2009, real estate REITs were very, very on sale. So anything, it could be international, it could be global real estate, anything can be on sale. But it's this idea of, I want to buy what's on sale. I don't want to buy what's been hot. It's easy to look at trailing returns and say, I want to buy that. But the, the leap of logic you're making there is past returns are going to be equal to future results. I'm just going to buy the thing that's doing well. It doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. Whatever they did best last one year, three year, five year, 10 year, they never repeat. They just don't tend to repeat. And there's people like, but, 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 but. And every time they say that, and I go, show me your data. And they go, well, look what's been doing well in the last year, or the last two years, the last three years. Nothing does better than X. What about the last 20 years, last 30 years, last 40 years? What about your life expectancy? Because you're only 25, you're only 35, you're only 45. You've got decades left in your lifetime and you're going to make a decision based on what's happened in the last year. You're in for a fall. Buying cheap assets potentially could be set you up for a better experience over the next decade. In our chat groups, many people have been talking about... You're talking about the, the, the groups on Facebook. Yes. Right. Yes. They mentioned the S&P 500 is all you need. Gets the, it's the done ETF, incredibly well. SPY, that's all you need. It's done incredibly well over the last, you know, we're at 2020 now, so call it 2009, 11 years or so. It's done incredibly well. In fact, it's one of the better, better performing asset classes around the world. It hasn't always been that, nor is it likely to always be that in every single 10-year time frame. Um, but there's a reason it's a core of the herd portfolios because it has been a consistent, fairly consistent performer over 20 year periods of time. And, and that there's big, solid, good, solid businesses in that category. And there's no dip- disputing that. But there's a greater menu out there than just one thing. And it has had periods where it's done just God awful while other things were making money. And so someone who is looking to buy cheaper asset classes at times may not have that much exposure to that kind of thing. In fact, like you said, it takes fortitude to have these kind of things. It takes fortitude to be different. It takes fortitude to own things that are, or it takes fortitude to not own things that have done well or to own less of those things. And then it takes a lot of, a lot of confidence and a lot of faith to buy something that's cheap. And then you look at the trailing return and it's really not that compelling. 
but how do you know what's on sale? I mean, there's, there's mathematical things that we use. We've got access to research tools that are phenomenal to help us with this. Um, and then we look at multiple tools, of course, to, to make sure that we're not just adhering to one person's idea, that kind of thing. We, we look for uh, corroborating evidence, so to speak. But for the, for the layperson out there, what they could do is they could look at, they could just, you know, just ask yourself, what do all the amateurs hate right now? <laughs> Probably on sale, or at least it may narrow the list down, right? What are they afraid to invest in? On the flip side, what are all the amateur investors in love with? That's probably not on sale, especially if there's poor fundamentals on those investments. So you dig into the fundamentals, you find out everybody's in love with XYZ and you look and they've never made a profit. Or everybody's in love with XYZ, it's going to the moon, they say. And the entire thing hinges on whether they win a victory um, from a government regulator that's going to give them approval on something or not. It all hinges on that one thing. And it's either going to be dramatically good or dramatically bad. The risk there is gigantic. That's the gambling thing you were talking about. That's just total speculation and gambling. On the bond side of things, you get it gets a little bit more complicated because bonds are just basically things, they're loans where they have a rate of interest that they pay and there's a maturity date. So when you're looking at bonds, you're trying to figure out what bonds are attractive, what bonds are not attractive. And there's all kinds of complications with the bond market. It's actually, there's a, there's a, there's a saying amongst the professionals that the bond analysts are actually the smarter people in the room because it's a much more complicated world. And then there's other people who say bonds are totally simple because it's simple math. But you got to ask yourself, where are the yields on bonds relatively attractive compared to other things? So, for example, and when the, the economy in 2008 was at a bottom, high yield bonds had been just completely crushed in terms of their prices. And so you could buy high yield bonds at 50, some of them 50 cents on the dollar or 70 cents on the dollar. And the thing is, they weren't all going to default. But the market was priced as if they were all going to default. And anybody that invested in high-yield bonds in late 2008 tended to have a good experience moving forward compared to if they just owned CDs and treasuries and things like that. So sometimes some areas of bonds are relatively attractive. They call that a yield spread. So for example, a high-yield bond's paying, say, 8%. A treasury's paying 3%. That's a 5% spread. And when spreads get wide between high yield and treasuries, long-term investors stand to benefit there if they put a little bit more money in, in things when those spreads are wide. At least historically speaking, that's occurred. When they're really, really narrow, it's a harder challenge. And then they're, sometimes the spreads are better at the two-year mark, five-year bonds, seven-year bonds, 30-year bonds. It, it, it's a complicated world, but you can find what's undervalued in the bond side of things as well. So you can go with the herd, domestic stocks, domestic bonds, primarily, and then you can buy, and then you dabble in maybe other things. Or you could focus on a strategy that simply says, hey, I'm going to buy whatever's on sale. If you buy whatever's on sale, what do we talk about valuation? It's a 10 to 12 year wait. Valuation tells you absolutely nothing about what's going to happen in a year or three years, or even five years. 
There will be times when you're investing in any strategy where you feel like you're underperforming compared to everybody else. You could be with the herd and it could be a horrible two or three year period. We saw that from 2000 to 2003. Horrible three-year market, 2000, 2001, 2002, three years in a row of negative returns. Not exactly fun. And yet it's still where everybody invests, right? So patience, 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 long-term, long-term, long-term. And if you're buying cheaper assets, do you stand potentially to earn more return over time? Historically, valuation seems to correlate with that. Yes, is there a guarantee that always will happen? Nope. Could you buy cheaper assets and have the next couple of years be worse than if you invested with the herd? Yep. Absolutely. Could you invest with the herd and it's worse than if you bought cheap assets? Yes. There's no telling what you're going to do in the next one to two to three years. This is why the let's see how it goes people are always rolling the dice. Basically, they don't realize that they are, but they're rolling the dice. Let's see how it goes. Well, if you're lucky, you'll have a good experience. If you're unlucky, you'll have a bad experience up front. But if you wait 10, 12 years on whatever strategy you choose, you're likely to be better off. Just stick with your strategy, whatever it is. It's all about personal preference. Both of these things work. We're not advocating one or the other. It's just all of them work over time. Historically, anyway, they've all worked. The other option, and this is a bigger set of options really, is whether you're with the herd or whether you're seeking to buy assets that are on sale primarily, you can just buy those and hold them and be passive. What's the advantage of that? Super cheap. Sometimes more tax efficient. Simple. Effective, provided that you're patient enough. Again, buy the index. Yeah, you could just buy a passive, low turnover portfolio of large U.S. stocks and U.S. bonds, exchange-traded funds that follow indexes, the total market, the total bond. But even if you're in that strategy where you're buying the cheaper assets, you're buying the, the things that are on sale, there's indexes for all those categories as well. And you could buy them and just hold them. And it's simple and it's effective. Long-term, it's effective. And... You just have that easy, patient, I'm going to ride it out mentality. But then there's human nature. Human nature is we always want to improve on what we, you know, could we, could we do a little better? And so that's when active management comes into play. And there's lots of ways that people try to take, do something more active in the short run to improve upon those long-term passive results. And the idea really is to give people a, a better ride so they'll stick with the strategy. Yep. If you have a better ride, you, you're, you're minimizing huge, the risk of huge declines, for example, odds are they're going to stick with the strategy over time and that's going to be successful in the long run. So We've had people who've, we've had clients who've said to us, I don't want to live through that again. Yeah, 2008. In, yeah, I mean, what I, can we yeah. do to be active what can we do to avoid calamity can't we do something right and i had that in the dot-com bubble um, dot-com bubble we wrote it out and the feedback i got from uh, clients at that time was for the love of god don't ever let me have to go through that again 
next, you know, next time I'm not riding it out. Because three years, I mean, it's three years. And you throw 9-11 in the mix there, and it, yeah, it was trying, to say the least. 2008 was a year and a half, and that was terrifying as well for a lot of folks. Um, and we, we did not ride that one out. But we had a lot of folks that uh, also, you know, they didn't, they didn't ride it out, and uh, many folks didn't get a lot of the recovery the way they might have. So that doesn't work either. But again, it's their money. To a great extent, they can, they can decide, hey, I'm going to be conservative. I don't care, <laughs> right? And if you're conservative, that's the problem. If you're getting out of the market and you're getting into the market, you're in this like horrible guessing game of when do I get in? When do I get out? When do I get in? When do I get out? So that's, that's not the kind of active we're really talking about. When we're talking about active strategies that have typically that can typically add value over time, we're talking about things like the following. Number one that's real common out there is people will hire, um, they'll either try to pick stocks on their own and try to, quote, beat the market. And they, here's what they do. I mean, 90% of the people I see that are picking stocks, they're going, what's done well? And they'll buy that. And they won't really do a full analysis of the company or anything like that. They won't buy, they won't diversify. They'll just go, I want XYZ because everybody I know uses XYZ and I think they're a great company. Or And it's been doing so well. And it's been doing so well. So therefore, I'm just going to extrapolate whatever it's been doing for the last one month, three months, six months, one year, and just draw a straight line to the moon at that rate and they assume that's going to happen. Um, we talked about that. That that doesn't necessarily work, but there people will do that. Um, people will have also historically hired professional managers to pick stocks. And the research is old and plentiful to show that stock picking is a difficult game, even for teams of professionals to... Uh, really provides significant, consistent added value by picking stocks. That is a very, very difficult game, historically speaking. There have been times when it's worked, but most of the time it's been a very tough thing over the long run. So that's number one. Number two, we could call it uh, trend following, which is a euphemism for chasing returns, so to speak. You know, Buy whatever's been winning and hold it, and when it stops winning, get out of it. So there's trend following. There's mutual funds that do this. There's all kinds of things that say, hey, when, when a stock is above its 200-day moving average, buy it. When a stock goes below its 200-day moving average, sell it. Um, that can work over time, provided that the trend actually persists long enough. To capture it, right? Yeah. It, the other thing is that you'll have some situations where the decision, like on a mutual fund, um, you can have a mutual fund that follows trends, and maybe they only make adjustments monthly. And... A problem like like example is uh, February March of two thousand or twenty twenty, right? Everything dropped dramatically in a three week period of time, and so by the time they were triggered to get safe, it was over. And then when they were safe for the month of say April, and they missed April's recovery. Because so they got they got out at the low and then missed a recovery up and, it, and the trend following system could actually they call it getting whipsawed. You're not triggered until after the bomb's gone off and then the trend doesn't develop, 
and it recovers right away. And then uh, the trend following system can actually lag behind. There are times when there are no trends. And so the system yeah. can lag. You can have a sideways market where you're getting just whipsawed all over the place and you're going nowhere where you have a trendless market. And uh, so trend following can be problematic if you're using that as your strategy. It's a strategy. And over very, very long time, long-term periods, it's been shown to work in some cases, some of them anyway. But there are periods of time, like any strategy, where it could be not that great. Another strategy to mitigate risk for people who use stocks or, um, or exchange-traded funds, that tr- they're like mutual funds, index funds that trade like a stock on the exchange. That's why they call them exchange-traded funds, ETFs for short. You can put stop orders. Uh, a stop loss order. So your 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 investment is at fifty dollars a share. You want to preserve that value, and you're afraid if it goes down a certain point, you're going to want to get out. So you could say okay, or you bought it. At, let's say you bought it at two dollars and fifty cents, and now it's at twenty nine dollars, and you want to make sure you <laughs> you keep that twenty nine dollars. You can put an order in to sell at say twenty five. Ah, in that hypothetical situation. Purely hypothetical. It's never going to be discussed again, Brian. I didn't mention the stock. <laughs> um, but a stop, a stop limit order can, can provide some level of downside protection on those assets. And, um, and, and if, if a position goes down to a certain point, it gets sold automatically. And you can instruct your brokerage firm to do that. So stop limits are a potential thing. The risk of the stop orders or the stop limit orders is that if you have like a really short-term massive drop in an investment where it opens up uh, the next day much, much lower than your stop price. Um, if you have a plain stop order, let's say you have that $50 stock and it opens up at 25 the following morning and you had a stop price at, 40. your stop loss was at 40. If it's a stop order, it's triggered at 40. But that trade will execute at 25 the next morning. So what was the point? Did it, did it really mitigate the risk? No. The other one is a stop limit order where you say, hey, I'm going to trigger it at 40 and I want no worse than 40 a share. But if it opens up at 25, guess what? It isn't going to execute until it comes back up to $40. So stop limit orders are not perfect. They can be helpful, but... And then the, you know, there's a flip side to that. Well, with the, the stop limit orders, there's also... That's, there's a level of guessing because you have your $50 stock, you put the the order in at 47, it drops down to 45, you sell out, and right there, it turns around and goes back up to 65, and you're out and you missed that gain. So there, there's that level of- They call it getting having, stopped out. Yeah. You it, have to be actively, it's active. You've got to manage it moment to moment sometimes. It's really time consuming if you're, if you're doing that. Um, and like but you said, it can it's a work. What's more effective than a stop? A put option. Mm. So options are one of a group of, of investments called derivative securities. They are derived from other things. And a put option is like a, it gives you the right to sell at that $40 a share, period. Anytime over the next, say, three months or six months or one month or whatever. And when you buy a put option to give you that downside protection, you pay money for that. You, it's like insurance. You're paying a premium for it, right? 
And then it expires and you have to buy another one at a different price. And you have to figure out what's the right one. And if you get too far away, it gets too expensive. Or if you get too high, it gets too expensive and that kind of thing. Or what's the timing and all that. And there's other options on the upside called call options. So you could, you could have a call option. Say, I want to I I buy a stock at a certain price. So I'll buy an option to buy Apple stock, for example, at a certain price. And you got to pay for the right to do that. So and those options may never be exercised, or you may never. They use may never. Them. They may. They may expire valueless. It's like insurance. And there, you've your premiums now start diluting your returns. Right. And so they could potentially be very expensive. So options can be very, very effective, but like all things, there's a trade-off, and they're potentially time-consuming to manage. They're expensive if they they expire worthless, and if you delegate that level of activity and that level of management, it's still time consuming for the managers. They're going to charge you and it's going to get really expensive to delegate. So options are a challenge. Sometimes Um, there are ways to potentially mitigate risk and enhance return over time by investing in alternative strategies or alternative assets. These are things other than stocks or bonds that could be, all kinds of things from simple as real estate and gold to things that are as uh, esoteric as managed futures, long short funds, that kind of thing, uh, hedge funds. Am I missing private equity? Private equity. So there's there's other categories there. Many cases those things are complicated, which kind of violates our whole simple and effective thing. Mm-hmm. And also, usually they're not cheap. And they're not transparent in many cases. In many cases, you don't really know exactly what's going on. Private equity, for sure. You have no idea. You don't have any liquidity. You're going to get your money when you get your money. It's not something you... It's totally different. That's why they call it alternative assets. Um, There's another area that mitigates risk called... That's been developed in the last, I'd say... People have probably been doing it longer than this, but... Really, in the last, I'd say, 20 years or so, academic research has has started to look at the investment world with an eye on volatility itself. And this goes to probabilities. We always say probabilities, not prediction. You, It seems that some people have been able to develop ways of what they call volatility timing. So they're looking at the world and they're trying to figure out with a fair amount of accuracy how volatile is, say, the stock market going to be over the next month. And then once they know that, the leap is if it's going to be highly volatile over the course of the next month or so, then there's a lower probability that you're going to have a good month in the stock market. And if it's a relatively low volatility month, Usually, historically, it's been an easier month in the market, in the stock market, for example. So there are strategists out there. We use some of these strategists at work where the leap of logic is if they anticipate and there's an indication there's going to be higher volatility, they're going to dial back how much stocks are in that portfolio. And if there's a probability that volatility is going to be lower next month, they're going to dial up 
the exposure to the stock market, for example, in that in that volatility timing type of of methodology. And you, I'll, I'll be the first to say you can't predict the returns of the stock market in the short term. You cannot predict everything's probability analysis. Everything's probability analysis. So there is no perfect solution to anything. But anybody who's this is just one of those active strategies. It's one of them that are on the menu. It's one of those that are out there just like options, just like stop limit orders, just like stock picking. Sometimes they work. Sometimes they don't. Some are better than others. Some are more highly probable than others of working. Um, but this is this is one of the ones that we've we've used. And uh, and there's a cost usually when you're having somebody do that, just like anything. So that can cost, I don't know, 0. 0.3, 0. 0.4 basis points. 0.3, or, 0.4%. 0.3, 0.4%. So mm -hmm. 30, 40 basis points, they call it. Yeah. So a basis point is one one hundredth of a percent. So we're talking 30, 40 basis points. Um, back to your percentage math. Right. Uh, I think Khan Academy, hopefully, will get a lot of attention. <laughs> look, look up Khan, K-A-H-N Academy, I think is one of the websites. And you can go, they, they can teach all kinds of math through videos and, and stuff like that. It's like a complete review. I've, I've actually gone some to some of their courses too to uh, at least help me help my kids with homework Sure, when they were younger. It's a reminder for anybody who is interested in investing to yeah. beef up their basic, some basic math. So number six on the active management, uh, active management strategies. One is, you know, that's number volatility timing. The, and the seventh one is, um, I don't know what to, t what to call it, but there we've seen strategies where there's a, there's a system for, moving back and forth between domestic stocks and foreign and emerging stock, emerging market stocks. And that is, again, a probability-based analysis where somebody, you're, you're, this is something that the people don't do themselves. This is something something's delegated out, but it's one of the strategies that are out there where you can kind of, uh, hey, I want to be global, but only if it's going to be a good idea to be global. And there's there's ways where you can increase the probability of that working in your favor from time to time. So um, you're just reducing your international exposure when it doesn't make sense. And then you're bringing it back when it makes more sense. Because there are risks when you invest overseas. Absolutely. For American investors. So. That gets into the, the correlation between the various asset classes. We haven't used that term yeah, very much. And, and, and when, they're, when they're all moving together, generally, it makes no sense to... Why take the risk, right? And when they're moving differently... Like back in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, uh, for example, emerging market was on a complete tear. Did phenomenally well for a few years. And that would have been a good time where it was doing differently than the U.S. Sure. Maybe okay time to be foreign. But then there's also been multiple year periods where things like emerging markets have done much, much worse than the United States. Where you want to be more with the herd. And that kind of thing. So that's there's 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 a strategies that move back and forth between categories, between asset classes, and that's ways to, to actively manage. So people who are looking at their strategies say, I'm a herd person, but I'm concerned about risk. Well, there's ways to manage risk. Um, I'm a buy value assets person, but the areas that are on sale are making me uncomfortable. Maybe I want to do something to manage risk in some way, shape, or form. And so there's ways that people can put things together. And again, all these strategies work if you're patient enough. You just have to be aware of what you're getting yourself into and make sure you figure out what matches you in your stomach acid tolerance level, I guess. Um, 
Other things that potentially can add value when, when you're investing is uh, tax loss harvesting. So volatility is one of those things that you just can't avoid in most cases. And tax loss harvesting is a way of kind of making some lemonade out of the, that short-term lemon you get when you get some volatility. You have a, a fund go down in value temporarily. You believe in it long-term, but hey, it's less than you paid for it. And it's in your joint account with your spouse. You could just write it out and let it come back up because you believe in it. Or you could sell it and buy a different asset that's sort of similar. And then you've realized a capital loss. Capital loss, you put it in your pocket. And then you can use it when you file your taxes. You can write off up to $3,000 against your ordinary income. And if you had more than $3,000 of realized losses for that year, you can carry them forward. And this is them. as the year 2020. We're not tax professionals. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this isn't tax advice, but tax loss harvest is this idea that you're putting all these, you're, you're, you're harvesting any of these temporary losses. You're putting them in your pocket and saving them for a sunny day. And then when you have capital gains, you can use those losses that you've had to offset those gains and you've saved money on taxes. So that's a, that's a strategy that potentially can add value. And the weird thing about this is that this kind of value is actual tax money. It's real money. It's not sexy because it doesn't show up on your statement. It doesn't show up as your performance. But it can, it can have some serious teeth if you use this effectively. And we've seen We've seen situations where Tax loss harvesting alone can make up an additional 1% or more of certain portfolios per year over time. And that, that adds up. It doesn't show up on your performance report, but that's dollars saved that you didn't pay in taxes. That's real money. So tax loss harvesting is worth being aware for. What's the catch on tax loss harvesting? It's either very time consuming or you have to pay somebody to do it. There you go. Like all things that have value, right? Sure. So all this said, you're going to be a herd investor. You're going to be the investor that looks to buy cheaper assets that are on sale. Maybe you're going to be passive. Maybe you're going to in, in, invest in some active, some time or invest some money in some active management of some kind to add value there. Whatever you do, you still need to understand the volatility of your portfolio. You still need to know how it aligns with your goals and your risk tolerance, you have to know these things. And, you know, the profession, the good, solid fiduciary professionals are going to use multiple tools to make sure that they understand all these things. But you, you need to be going through all those questions that were in episode seven. You, if you haven't listened to that, you need to go back and listen to that. Um, you need to get those big questions asked and, and answered in order to have your, uh, I guess, a higher probability of success in your, in your long-term planning. For the do-it-yourselfer, Brian, I think two things worth mentioning is some solid advice for those folks is number one, keep your ego in check that you may not be as smart as what you think you are. And if you are successful with purchasing a stock, just know that you may have lucked into owning that stock and your your brains, you choosing it 
doesn't mean uh, did, is, was not the deciding factor in that stock taking off and having a good return. So yeah, the, humility humility is really important, and if you don't have it, the market will humble you at some point. And that gets back to the point number two: is emotions. Be aware of your emotions, and that gets into risk tolerance. But being mindful, you're doing this yourself. So you're it's after work or you're doing it during work. There's emotional aspects to it that you need to be aware of. You're hearing things from the news is hitting you, social media, the TV. You're getting stuff from your friends. You're seeing reports. And I can tell you, let's see, I started this in, I started doing this professionally in 1994, made a career out of it. Even experts have that pit in the stomach feeling, and we're experts at this stuff. And you can still have a pit in your stomach wondering what's going to happen and, and get worried. If you don't have that fallback to something disciplined, if you don't have a fallback to something that you're focused on, that, that discipline you have of sticking with a strategy, no matter what, you've, you've, you do your best to find out that the strategy is going to work over time and you have to believe in that and stick with it long term that you got to go a full market cycle everybody gets tested everybody gets tried emotionally and you're 100% right you've got to have that fall back to that discipline it'll save you it'll save you but if you know right now and and anybody anybody listening to this is probably you know, assuming you've you've gotten to that place where you know your risk tolerance, you know your goals, and everything's aligned, and now you figured out I'm more of a I'm more of an invest with the herd person, or I'm more of a buy cheap assets person, or I'm more of a passive investor, or I'm more of an active investor, and I've figured all that stuff out. Even if you're there, I'd say people fall into generally, you know, a handful of different situations with where they are at any moment in time. There's people that are super happy and content with where they're at. They may not understand what they're doing and why. It may be completely on trust and faith, or it may be that they actually understand what's going on and they've asked all the questions and they understand everything. But they're super happy and content. Um, and if they're on their own, maybe they're happy and content and they're in maybe the little complacency can come in there. Or maybe they've been working with an advisor for a very, very long time. Like even you know, even some of the people we work with have been with us for you know, twenty-five years. Where they, it's it's just a relationship thing. It's a trust thing. And for those folks, what I would suggest is you still need to go back periodically and look at those questions that need to be answered. I'd say episode seven is the best place to start in our podcast because it talks about those key questions that need to be answered. You need to ask those questions. You need to answer those questions. And you need to ask until you understand enough that you can relay some of those answers to another person. Otherwise, you don't really know what's going on and why. And the danger there, even if you're happy, even if you're content, the danger is eventually you might not be and you don't want to be that person that, oh my gosh, I haven't paid attention for a few years. Oh my gosh, what's happened? And now all of a sudden you're, you're interested. Stay engaged. Even if you're happy, 
even if you trust the professional you work with, engage. Ask until you really understand. Take the time. It's important. It'll save you. If there's any little thing on your mind, you need to get that out there and and communicate with your advisor. You need to talk it through with your spouse. You need to find the answers to your questions so that you can have that success long-term. So if you're one of those people, just get engaged. Stay engaged. Don't let complacency sneak in and damage you long-term. Pay attention when you meet with with your professionals. A step step from there, maybe maybe somebody's a little bit concerned. Maybe they're a little bit worried. A little nervous. A little nervous in the current market. In that case, I think maybe it's the same thing. Get more engaged. Ask all those questions. Look at the look at the your your investment philosophy the way we talked about today. Are you preferring something that's passive? or active are you looking for cheaper assets or are you more with the herd maybe you need to understand valuation a little bit more maybe you have a shorter term mindset maybe you need to lengthen your mindset and just review and re-educate yourself on what probable what your expectations need to be your risk preference may have changed from the last time your risk tolerance may have changed now that you, you bring that up and i'll say this your risk tolerance shouldn't be changing with the wind. We've seen some people here and there where their risk, they wanted to redo their risk profile every time the market moved up or down. The market would move up and then they'd have a higher risk score. And the market would go down and now they have a lower risk score. And all they're doing is chasing past returns, worry, you know, buying high, selling low. That good point by you. Good point by you. You, you. you want to do that maybe every five years or so. Right. In my in my uh, comment here would be somebody who may be a little bit nervous is looking at things and saying, Oh, I don't know. Well, maybe that person needs to ask some questions, take a look at their risk tolerance and say, you know, we last did this five years ago when I was still working and thinking I was going to be working for another 15 years. I'm looking now to retire in a year because life has life changed. has changed. Yep. Life has changed. So maybe I need to revisit that and that might help. Taking action can help alleviate the nervousness. You always feel better when you're playing offense. Then there's the people that are just dissatisfied. I mean, they're just like, gee whiz, you know, things aren't going well in my investment portfolio or my financial planning. Something's got to change. I don't like what's going on. I'm not happy. And it could be somebody who's like really unhappy or it could be somebody who's like, geez, man, you know, can't we... Can't we be doing something better? I mean, this is kind of lame. And for those people, I would, I would you know, it's a similar advice. You, you do need to revisit everything. Maybe you've been in the herd and the herd is kind of slowing down a little bit. And you're like, eh, isn't there something I could do better? Maybe you need to look in some of those active strategies if that really is bothering you. And again, they're all, there's pros and cons to all of them. Maybe you need to look at expanding your menu of investments. Maybe you need to think beyond total U.S. Mark, stock market and total U.S. bond market. Maybe you need to look at other categories of investing. And it might be just revisiting the risk prevention strategies or the risk mitigation strategies that you do have in place 
And so as you're looking up at your returns and you're saying, I'm not happy here, and you revisit it and you rediscover, you relearn that your strategy has these, these active components yeah. that are preventing you that are uh, preventing you from having the same returns as the herd at this moment. And you might look back and say, oh, okay, I now understand. I forgot why I did that in the Thank first you. place. Right. Yeah. Honestly, when that happens, usually it's the, they, have a, they have too short of a time frame. In their, their mindset is too short term. This is why we keep hammering long-term investing, long-term investing, long-term investing. Seven to 12 years. Not see how it goes for 18 months. Seven to 12 years. That's a full market cycle. And any strategy, it's seven to 12 years. And I know it's a big chunk of your life. I don't want to wait that long. I know. Sadly, that's not the way the investment world works. I'm sorry. It, it's, it's frustrating because you want to be able to evaluate quickly. It's really hard to do that. You have to rely on hard, long-term analysis. And there's some level of faith with whatever strategy you employ. But if you're dissatisfied... Don't just sit there and be dissatisfied, but also don't necessarily throw the baby out with bathwater. You might be in a fantastic strategy that just isn't having its time in the sun right now. Don't sell low. Or you may be in a bunch of garbage and you may have been completely undisciplined with how you put your portfolio together, in which case, yeah, you need to revisit everything for sure. But you need to ask all the important questions, focus on the big rocks, focus on controllables, do what you can follow best practices that work over time don't let emotion dictate yeah yeah don't let that get a hold of you sorry and there's going to be people out there who you know hopefully hopefully if they listen to this podcast hopefully they're starting to learn from this but there's going to be people out there that still are captured from time to time by the fear of missing out chasing the hot thing the person who maybe was happy with their strategy three months ago and maybe now they're saying, hey, what have you done for me lately strategy or what have you done for me lately, Mr. or Mrs. Advisor? For those people, it goes back to the unrealistic expectations thing. If you have a fear of missing out because you're chasing some hot thing, don't. Stop that. If it's your serious money, stop that. If you, if you have to scratch that itch, Take a few hundred bucks and play around with it on your on your own play account or your fun money or your mad money account. But the large, large, large portion of your portfolio should be invested in a long-term high probability of success portfolio. And let me let me be very clear. I, I say high probability of success. That's not based on somebody's opinion. Like you can't decide. You can't decide arbitrarily as an investor. I believe this, therefore it is. I believe this is a stable company because look what it's been doing. Therefore, it is a stable company. That's assuming past performance is going to equal future results. doesn't work that way. I'm sorry to be deep beating a dead horse, but if you have that fear of missing out and you're chasing the hot thing, a long-term best practices, well-designed portfolio based on asset allocation first, your risk tolerance, your goals. There's been mathematics and probability analysis and all these things gone into it, whether you're using something like Portfolio Visualizer or you're using tools that professionals use like we use. That analysis needs to be done. Monte Carlo analysis, that kind of thing. You need to know that it's a high probability of success using 
some level of science, not just I think or I believe. I believe really strongly. Well, I don't care how much I believe I can slam dunk a basketball. I'm five foot eight and 48 years old. I'm not going to slam dunk a basketball. Not without help. Not without a trampoline or a ladder. <laughs> it's not happening. It doesn't matter how much I believe. You still got to do the work. You got to do. You got to. You got to do the hard math when you're doing your finances. Whoever people are, the fundamentals don't change. The realities don't change. When you're doing long-term investing, you got to have a long-term mindset. You're doing long-term investing. It's going to take work. Or you're going to have to pay somebody else to do work. And then you're going to have to still engage with that person, even if you've delegated it. You can't ignore it. But you also can't be changing lanes every five seconds either. You got to be long-term. You got to be long-term. You got to know what, what's right for you. And fortunately, there's plenty of things out there to help you with that. And people. So I think that's all I have for for today on long-term. I know there's people out there going, yeah, but what stock or fund should I buy today? <laughs> you need to have a longer-term perspective. It's out there. It's published. Or there's advisors that can help you. You know, But um, you might be listening to this podcast. I'm you know, speaking to people out there. You might be listening to this podcast years after we record this. That's why we're not putting specific recommendations on these podcasts, nor are we really should be, should we really be putting personal investment advice on, on the air? We're not doing that. What's good for your neighbor may not be good for you. You know, that's an important point. Everybody's different. Everybody's unique. You know, we work with hundreds of people over our careers. I haven't seen anybody that's identical. Everybody's goals are different. Everybody's financial situation is different. So you have to figure out what's unique to you. Please, please consider listening to the other episodes. Thank you so much for listening. If you are looking to support our podcast in some way, shape, or form, uh, the best way you can support our podcast is to share the podcast and subscribe to the podcast. That's probably the, the best thing you can do right now is get this information out to as many people as possible. That's That's our mission here. And... Uh, beyond that, we would love to just engage and get to know you uh, one way or the other. So we have uh, a Facebook group that Dan and I administer on. Uh, it's a private group called Investing in Financial Planning for Beginners. Um, please engage us on social media. We are at Fierce Fiduciary. On most social media, uh, Dan Alberth and I both have our own social media accounts. I'm usually Brian C. Beasley. On, on all my social media. I'm everywhere. I'm very active there. Um, and if push comes to shove and you really uh, are looking for um, just a more deeper conversation or something more personal, um, we do do this for a living. So between Dan and I and our partner, Tom Stesich, um, you can find us at Athena Private Wealth. So thanks again so very much for listening. We'll be following up with more material on this podcast. Thanks again. Until Cue, next time. Cue the tiger. <laughs>